Please pray with me. Lord God, we pray that you might speak to us this morning, that you might guide and direct our hearts, that your Holy Spirit would fall afresh upon us, Lord, and that we would have a wonderful encounter with you this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. It's so good to see you all today. Well, I brought with me an acorn today. And it's kind of a funky acorn. It's got, instead of a smooth, scaly-looking hat, it has a pokey one. Anyone know um, when this acorn fell off the tree? No, it wasn't yesterday. I can guarantee you that. You guys don't know? Why not? Anyone know what kind of oak tree it's from? Or where that oak tree, what that oak, when that oak tree first started growing? Like how many years it's been in the ground? Or how much water it sucks up every year? Or how many leaves it has? Or where it's growing? Why not? Oh, come on, this educated group of people. I'm sure somebody knows all this. There's a limit to our knowledge, isn't there? Right? I even saw the oak tree that this fell off of. And I don't know when it fell. I don't know how old it is. It was up on a mountain up by Mount Shasta. I mean, that's not super helpful. But there's so much about this oak tree, I don't know. And even though I hold the acorn, it still remains a mystery to me. Let's get closer to home. How many hairs are on our head? Some of us, that's an easier question than others, right? (laughs) But most of us, we don't know, do we? Because the number changes every day, doesn't it? There's these things about us and our world that we're just clueless on. We think we have a lot of knowledge. We think we understand a lot of things. We might be well-educated, but we know so very little about this world that we purport to know so much about. Don't we? When it really comes down to it. Today we're going to be talking about Job. Anybody know Job? Anybody know what land Job lives in? It would have been easy to put on envelopes. Uz. Uz. Right? I love that. You wouldn't have to write out, like, you know, this long thing. No, just us. That's where Job lived. And the book is set in the second millennium B.C., so that's a long time ago, right? Kind of like the same distance we are now from the birth of Christ, he was before it. And uh, Uz is a land which is east of the Jordan River. So go find the Jordan River, head east, and you'll get to Uz. Uh, And Job is a wealthy, upright guy. Everything in Job's life is pretty squared away, right? He's got lots of flocks, he's got lots of uh, kids... He's got this, you know, everything is working out for Job. He's well-respected in the community. And he has a good family, and he cares about his family and their spiritual needs. He's very focused on this, making sure they're always right with God. It's something that's very important to Job. So, uh, that's Job. Then we move up into the heavenly realms. And Satan comes to God and wants to show God that Job only loves God because life is good for Job. Does that make sense? Right? Satan's argument is Job only likes you because you bless him. That's a fair argument, don't you think? His argument is that Job is faithful to God because God has blessed everything that Job has done. And so, of course, Job would like him. 
And so Satan says, if God were to remove his favor from Job, then Job's faith would dry right up, like removing water from a flower. Right, just all done. So God says, all right, Satan, give it a shot, which is kind of a bummer for Job, right? (laughs) You know, at this point, we're like, oh, this is not going to be pleasant for poor old Job. And so Satan, in rapid succession, takes away Job's flocks, his herds, his children, and his health. And so we see Job sitting in ashes, using like a broken piece of pot to scratch the boils on his body, and like covering himself in ashes, right? Does this sound like fun? Life has turned around in a majorly unpleasant way for Job. And so Job's wife famously comes to him and says, Curse God and die. With an exclamation point. That's a classic line, don't you think? That's her argument. That's her view of what Job should do now. Because she's working, her logic is working in the same line as what Satan was arguing, right? That blessings mean that God is good. Things that are not good means that God doesn't love you and you should just curse him and be done with him. But Job famously says, Shall we accept the good from God? And not the trouble. Pretty profound for a guy scratching his boils with a piece of pot, right? He says, look, can't I... I mean, I've taken the good from God. Can't I receive hard things as well? Isn't this okay for me? Then Job is visited by three friends who do nothing for seven days but sit with him in the dust. They really are compassionate for this week of time. But after this compassionate period, they begin to berate him over what they assume is some hidden sin that is causing Job to be punished. Right? Their line of reasoning is the same as Satan's as well, right? They're saying, look, you're experiencing this because you're bad, or God doesn't like you, and so you've got to get squared away. But Job's argument has always been, good or bad, I will praise the Lord. Now, This book contains their arguments and Job's replies, which always remain faithful to God. And there's these long sections of argument and reasoning that that take up many, many chapters in this book, and I won't go through all of those. But last week, our reading, we saw that Job says he wanted to argue his case before God so that God could see that he was faithful. Job wanted to go up to heaven and argue his case before God, say, God, you know what? I have been faithful to you. Um, you know, this is completely inappropriate. Right? That's what Job wants to do. I'm sure he'd understand my case if I made it before him. Now, this week, we have God's reply to Job, before Job even has an opportunity to present his case. And so God begins his reply to Job with, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? At this point, I think Job probably realizes that things are not going to go the way he had imagined they were going to go when he was scratching himself with that piece of pot, right? Don't you think? This is not what you want to hear as like an opening line when you're about to present your really well-thought-out defense. God is going to be the one in charge. And he then proceeds to challenge Job with a series of questions that show that God is truly in control and Job is not. Right? Let's, he just sets it all straight. Let's, let's establish this relationship, Job. And so God asks him, Were you around when I created the earth? And what do you think Job says to this one? Nope. Right? Well then, okay, moving right along, can you make it rain? 
Nope. And conspiracy theorists aside, neither can we, right? You know, if you're like that, the Air Force jets and all that kind of stuff, that's exciting. But uh, we can't really do it either, right? Then our passage closes with a paragraph that makes me pause, because God says, Can you hunt the prey for the lion, or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens, or lie in wait in their covert? Who provides for the ravens its prey when its young ones cry to God? And wander about for lack of food. This section, this little section about the lions and the birds, is phenomenal. Because it not only shows God's ultimate power, but his ultimate concern. Who are the young ravens crying out to, according to that passage? God. Does that strike anyone as amazing? The young ravens are not crying out to mama bird or daddy bird. They're crying out to God when they're hungry. And who is listening to them? God is listening to them. Their their cries do not go unheeded. God is listening to the cries of the baby ravens. He cares about their sustenance. Now, God has just established that he is the one who built the earth like a house. And then now it's this same God who cares about the needs of the young ravens. And these ravens know it, and so they call out to God when they're hungry. They are calling out to God to help them, and to feed them, and to care for their needs. The lesson here in Job is not only that God is God and that he is in charge, but it is more importantly that he takes care of every single creature that exists in this world, Job included. He cares for their needs. He's not only in charge, but he uses that authority to watch over and nourish those who who are underneath him. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Does this sound familiar? God has established in Job that he's the one who cares for the birds. Jesus, here in the New Testament, establishes that God is the one who cares for the birds. So it is for the birds. Right? And that's good. Because you and I are recipients of that as well. Because if God cares about the birds... What do you think he cares about us? How much do you think he cares about us? How much do you think he cares about our daily needs? How much do you think he cares about those things we're wrestling with in our lives? How much do you think he knows and loves us and wants to see us grow in our knowledge and love of him? The beauty of this text 
is that God takes a lofty heavenly principle and applies it down to a very small thing, like the cares of these poor baby ravens. And it reveals to us our limited knowledge, right? I mean, none of us knew the acorn thing, which I'm not stunned by because it came from a random place on a random mountain. But God knew when this acorn fell. He was nourishing that tree with his son and his water as it grew and produced this fruit. That was God's work. To care for this acorn, to see that it fell, and that it ended up in this pulpit on this Sunday. Right? God knew all those things. And he cared for them. And how much more does he care for us? You and I. The place where he showed us his utmost care and concern is on the cross, isn't it? Where Jesus Christ, the one who said that God cares for the birds and us more so, took our sin upon himself and was nailed to the tree so that through his death and resurrection, you and I could be reconciled to God. You and I, the ones with the limited knowledge, the ones with the limited strength, the ones with the limited ability and vision, God died for us so that we could be reconciled to him. And this is not a God who does not care for us. He does not do this because he's distant from us. He died for us so that we could be in relationship with him, so that you and I could relate to the creator of the universe, the author of life, and the lover of our souls. So may we come to him in humility, acknowledging who he is, so that we might be reconciled to him through the blood of the Savior. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you, the infinite, omnipotent, omniscient God, would deign to come into this world and die for us. Thank you for doing this, Lord. Thank you for doing what none of us could do. Thank you for caring for us in a way that none of us could care for each other or even for ourselves. Lord, we praise you that you know every single hair on our heads, Lord, and that you know every single thing we're wrestling with in our hearts and minds, and yet you, dis- and yet you chose to die for us and you choose to love us. Help us, Lord, to love you as well, to accept your sacrifice, and to serve you faithfully. Lord God, and like the young ravens, may we cry out to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.